never chose to tend my sheep. No handkerchief but chose to dry the eyes of those who weep. I have no arms but chose with which to hold. One's grown weary from the struggle, or weak with growing old. Voice but yours with which to sing to let my children know that I am love and love is everything. I have no way to feed the hungry souls, no clothes to give the naked, the ragged and the Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service. Above all, I'll seek out light, love, and helping hands being shared between our many neighbors on this planet, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I have no way to open people's eyes Except that you will show them how to trust the inner Spirit in Action will be visiting today with Barb Cass, who is a member and founder of the Anathoth Community Farm, an intentional community based on nonviolence, sustainability, and community in Luck, Wisconsin. Barb Cass has traveled a long and varied spiritual path, being raised Catholic, active with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in college, attending seminary near Chicago, involved with Catholic worker communities, and currently attends a progressive Lutheran church. She and her husband, Mike Miles, have been jailed for their actions, including for praying on the White House lawn. Barb, Mike, and Anathoth are an inspiration of rooted activist living. Good morning, Barb. Welcome to Spirit in Action. How are you doing today? Good. Are you pretty busy right now? What with preparations? I assume Mike is going to Washington, D.C.? He is going to Washington, and we are crazy. But this morning, as he checked all the lists, I think we're totally full. Every bus is full? Buses are full, and we're working off waiting lists. We're down to the nitty-gritty logistics. For our listeners, could you tell them what we're talking about here? Okay. Um, There is a large, and hopefully it will be a historically large, gathering in Washington, D.C. this weekend, calling for the end of the war, bringing the troops back. There is massive mobilization across the country to bring people out. I think they are up to 11 buses between central Minnesota, Wisconsin, all the way over to Milwaukee, Madison area. And people will leave Friday morning and get back Sunday night and spend two nights on the bus and whole day marching. So how many 
people are we talking about between these 11 buses? Probably 600 or so coming from this area, which is amazing. And who's organizing this? It's um, actually Peace North and the Northwoods Peace Initiative, which is just kind of a grassroots. It grew out of the last time in 2003. Well, Mike and I, around Christmas time, thought, wouldn't it be nice to send a bus out to the Let's Stop the War rally? In Washington, we've always taken vans out there. And so modestly thought, well, maybe we can get one bus. And one bus went to two, and two went to four. And by the time it was all done, 11 buses went out, and it was one of the biggest contingents. When we looked state by state how many buses had gone out, we held our own here in Wisconsin. And I felt like we came very close to historically stopping the war before it started. Barb, when you say you and Mike, you want to spell out who you are? Oh, I'm Barb Cass, and my spouse is Mike Miles, and we are members of the Anathoth Community Farm here in Luck, Wisconsin. Tell us about Anathoth. It's an intentional community, and we're based on nonviolence, sustainability, and community. Mike and I were the first people here. In 1987, we put up the first house, and since then it's grown to a community of nine adults. Our kids are now grown, but there's a small boy on the community that was our newest generation of peace activists, Amos. And we have student groups come and talk about nonviolence and intentional living, making a lot of ecological wisdom kinds of things are built into each house that we have here. We have six different houses, have a large organic garden where we grow most of our own food, certainly our fresh stuff and preserve it for the winter. Nuke Watch is housed here, the Northwoods Peace Initiative. A lot of stuff comes out of here. Mike does a lot of that by email. And Step Project Elf campaign, a lot of that energy came out of here. We've been involved in a lot of things over the last 18 years, a lot of activism, and a lot of good has come out of the farm. What led you to start Anathoth? Well, we had been living out on the East Coast with Elizabeth McAllister and Philip Berrigan in the early 80s and learned a lot about intentional community, a resistance community where we were actively involved in witness at the White House, the State Department, the Pentagon. But as we started having our own kids, we wanted to be closer to grandparents and family. My family's in the Twin Cities, Mike was in Chicago, so we moved back with the intent of finding a piece of land in a rural area, thinking that a rural resistance community had some good things about it. In Baltimore, we lived right in, right in the inner city. We felt the yes of our message would balance the no of no to militarism, no to violence, that the yes of living close to the land, providing an option, was a good yin and yang of what our lives were about. And so we set off to find a piece of land, and it took us three years to find this particular one. Then we raised money sent a note out to friends in our address book saying we have this idea of a rural resistance community. We're not going to borrow money. If you believe in it, send us $100. And in six weeks, we'd raised about $20,000, which was enough to buy the land. That must have been quite a transition for you to go from inner-city Baltimore to living in the country. Were you prepared for that kind of transition? How are you ever prepared? I mean... We actually had lived in Polk County for two and a half years before we bought the land. We did do some checking out. 
we moved back, looked around as to an area that we wanted to live in, and came up with Polk County. We knew about Project Elf and what that meant as far as the first strike weaponry, some of the witness that had been going on there. We were very tied into the Honeywell Project in the Twin Cities. Polk County was kind of halfway in between. There was another peace community nearby that had enough families there, but were extremely good neighbors and allies. We had been out in the country at kind of other farmhouses for a couple years. But I tell you, living in inner city Baltimore, we heated the house with wood, and there we didn't garden. We dumpstered food from the Maryland Food Terminal and a variety of places. So just kind of rework it, you know? Could you tell me a little bit about the community you lived in when you were in Baltimore? Where it came from, who was part of that community, what the purpose was? Okay. Jonah House was started after the Vietnam War ended. It was Philip Berrigan, Liz McAllister. But when we moved in, there were 13 adults and five children, which would include our child that was born there. We It was to address militarism, especially nuclear weapons. The Cold War was raging. We moved there in 1980. The first plowshares action had actually just happened weeks before. For those who don't know about plowshares actions against nuclear missiles, here's a Charlie King song, The Hammer Has to Fall. My name is Daniel Berrigan, chaplain at a hospice for the dying. I have seen the face of death, it is for life I bring this hammer down. My name is Molly Rush, I have six children, they deserve a future. I strike this blow today for the children all the world around. I hear the prophet's cry of hope ring through the prison wall. We've waited 30 centuries to see that hammer fall. If we think we've got 30 more, we cannot see at all. For swords into plowshares, the hammer has to fall. My name is Elmer Moss Were this a peaceful world I'd sit and play piano But lacking Nero's conscience I could not watch that fire devour the land My name is John Shushard I am no stranger to the prison that awaits us But where genocide is legal and an outlaw with a hammer in my hand. I hear the prophet's cry of hope ring through the prison wall. We've waited 30 centuries to see that hammer fall. If we think we've got 30 more, we cannot see at all. For swords into plowshares. Dean Hammer is my name Micah and Isaiah my tradition 
Oh, I tried to be their scholar, but could not escape their logic in the end. My name is Philip Berrigan. In World War II, I flew the bombing missions. Now with every blow I strike today, I say the bombs will never fall again. Its cry of hope ring through the prison wall. We've waited thirty centuries to see that hammer fall. If we think we've got thirty more, we cannot see at all. For swords into plowshares, the hammer has to fall. Carl Cabot. Is my name. I have lived and worked among the third world peoples. I've seen corporations flourish while the poor were left to fight for every breath. My name is Anne Montgomery. My life spent in community with women. I bring their healing power. To this factory of carnage and of death, I hear the prophet's cry of hope ring through the prison wall. We've waited thirty centuries to see that hammer fall. If we think we've got thirty more, we cannot see at all. For swords into plowshares. Ever has to fall. The hammer has to fall. We were with the Brethren Volunteer Service doing a year in Eastern Kentucky, way back in Appalachia country, and we had known of Jonah House. Mike had been pretty close to a man that lived there. So we'd gone out for a couple things at the Pentagon in some years there, and got a an invitation from the community saying, "We think this might be a good place for you. So uh, when your time is done with the Brethren Volunteer Service, why don't you think about coming for a trial period?" And that trial period turned into three years. We did a lot of organizing of actions, bringing people in from the East Coast. To the White House, we organized to pray in at the White House all of June of '81. I guess people were there praying on the lawn of the White House for peace. And it was when they were cutting all the social programs, putting it all into the military budget. It was during the Reagan era. Also, the Ural missiles. You know, there was a lot happening in 1980 and 1981 and the years that we were there. So we were active all the time of just trying to bring to light these issues. And I guess as it was said clearly out there that where you may not be able to change things, you can maybe hold back the darkness a little bit and and bring light into some pretty dark places. Was Jonah House a religiously based, spiritually based community? We had liturgy there every week. We had um, morning prayers and Bible study. I would say it leaned towards Catholic, certainly strongly Christian, but also that wouldn't characterize every single person in the community. Who were the founders then of Jonah House? 
Philip Berrigan and Elizabeth McAllister. And are they both Catholic of origin? They were. They were. Liz was a nun. Phil was a priest. You said, Barb, that you dumpster-dived for food there. My family did that a little bit when I was young because we needed to with our seven kids at that time. What was your dumpster-diving for food like there? In our neighborhood, we would take a pickup truck and go to the Maryland Food Terminal every Tuesday morning early, crack it on, and it was simply waste. It was beautiful produce that, because it was perfect, couldn't be sold in the grocery stores because by the time it was transported, it would be beyond peak. So we got excellent, amazing food that would have been just thrown out and fed 150 or so families in our neighborhood in Baltimore. People would line up with boxes and bags and come, and we'd lay everything out, and people would take what they needed, and we used what we could use in the community, and took the rest to soup kitchens, and it was a matter of just kind of redistributing waste. (laughs) That, uh, a wasteful thing, just unconscionable that we throw so much food away. We lived at a subsistence lifestyle. Our rent wasn't very high, or everybody worked part-time, but our activism took up a lot of time. The work of the house at that point was painting houses, painting churches, and then we had a common purse and lived very frugally. What was the big motivation for you to go from inner city out to where you live now, out in Luck? Oh, grandparents. Grandparents, and we were pregnant with our second child, actually as we made the trip from Baltimore back to the Midwest. Mike and I both had been close to grandparents. Seeing them once or twice a year was just not going to make it for us in what we wanted for our kids. So Mike had spent a lot of time on his grandmother's farm in Michigan, driven a tractor from a very early age, cows, all that kind of stuff. He remembers being in fifth grade or something and people saying, what do you want to be when you grow up, and weighing heavily whether to be truthful or to say what everybody else was saying. And he was truthful, and everybody laughed at him because he said he wanted to be a farmer. So he had deep roots in rural living, our time in eastern Kentucky. I liked the lifestyle and was willing to take a risk and, and learn a lot of things. My grandparents weren't on the farm, so I come from a family where food was prepared from scratch and canning happened and a lot of that. I had a lot of basic knowledge, but I read a lot of books and learned a lot of things in the 18 years that we've been here. Tell me a little bit about your background that led you first to get involved with Jonah House and other places. Uh, Did you grow up some kind of uh, left-wing radical? Oh, no. Oh, no. It would be uh, a surprise to all of us. (laughs) Although I have to say... I grew up Catholic in the suburbs of Minneapolis and was at a progressive parish. We had an open house this weekend here at the farm, and one of the women that I know from Minneapolis is active in the Witness Against Alliant Tech, where they make depleted uranium munitions and landmines. That's housed right there in Edina, Minnesota. Sister Dorothy is her name, and she is well in her 80s. Wouldn't you know, she's an activist, and she was a nun at the parish I grew up in. So I remembered Sister Dorothy from many, many years ago, and when I saw her at Alliant Tech and told her about our open house, she was able to get a ride out here and spend part of the afternoon with us here. There was much more progressive thought at that parish than I was ever aware of as a little girl. 
all those things, you know, what do you learn subliminally as a child? I don't know. I was always active in the church, went to catechism, um, active in the youth group. When I went to college, actually, I did participate in Newman Center, but I also met people that were part of more of the evangelical movement, the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And at that point in my life, I really thought that I had never really studied the Bible. Catholics didn't do a lot of Bible study. Now they do a lot of it, but they didn't when I was growing up. And I was really fascinated by that whole thing. So got involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and they had Bible study every week, and also had been involved with a youth organization called Young Life, which was bringing the gospel to kids that had a bad experience with the church. And we all know that churches can either be really great or really be restrictive, and kids either want to belong or they don't. But feeling like the faith was important enough to want to share it and try to get kids to understand. So I kind of have a mixed bag, you know. I sort of did it all and mixed a lot of traditions in my search for spirituality, ended up on Young Life staff, which is why I went to seminary. To be on staff with them, you need a master's of youth ministry. Ended up studying in Chicago at yet a different tradition, the Covenant Church Seminary called North Park had the youth ministry degree. And so I worked in inner city there. So Baltimore wasn't as much a jump as it could have been. I worked on the north side of Chicago out of a school that had 61 first languages and was reported to be third most violent neighborhood on the north side and I hung out with kids, tried to share a little truth with them, then heard about Catholic Worker and have mixed that in the pot and so now at 51, where would I put my hat on? I guess it would be Catholic Worker, (laughs) but there aren't Catholic Worker churches so we belong to a small Lutheran church here in town and are grateful for the gift of that community kind of along a roundabout, but you can tell that there is definitely a thirst for spirituality in my soul, and I look hard and wide trying to satisfy that yearning for spirituality. Would you describe the evangelicals, the the Christians you were active with in college, as liberal-leaning? I would not. You know, I've been out of school for a very long time. I do remember them talking about community as, you know, the early church where they shared what they had and that communal, collective, early church kind of models. I remember that being fairly radical. And and though we didn't live in community, I felt like people were really connected to each other. If I or anybody had a need money-wise, it was there. People did really care and sacrifice for each other's needs. So I have to say that. Politically, I think they were not. And I wasn't political until I went to seminary with a kind of a social worker background in undergrad. I worked with Catholic charities in the Twin Cities and worked at an intake center where we had a pantry and food shelf and got people signed up for emergency assistance, general assistance, those kinds of things. That summer was an eye-opener of what I saw in Minneapolis. All those things fit with concerns that must have been there a long time, but I just didn't have any experience there. So then going to the north side of Chicago, I was getting a better understanding of poverty and injustice and and those sort of things were building. And then to get the theology behind it at North Park was pretty life-changing. I all of a sudden really was scrutinizing things like what I was eating, where the very little money that I had was going, 
the inequality of how much money was being spent on weapons versus social programs. How can we have 6% of the world's population and consume 40% of the non-renewable resources? And I was a ripe field. You know, I, I looked at it, I took it in, and then said, now, what changes can I make in my life to reflect this injustice that I can at least try to address it in my patterns of consumption, my patterns of what I do with my time and energy? When you say you learned at the seminary the theology behind it, what did you learn? Well, one class that stands out was the biblical view of oppression and looking at the prophets in a, a new light, realizing how much Yahweh, God, sides on the side of the poor. How do we know God? It's really by serving the widows and the orphans is, is kind of the metaphor, but probably not metaphor because they were the ones with absolutely no voice, no power. A woman that was widowed had no economic choice. You know, she was totally at the mercy of other people's kindness. So seeing just that theology of poverty or understanding where God side with the poor, the rage of, against injustice, that probably injustice is much worse than so many of the other sins. I just looked at the parables in different ways, the teaching of Jesus, seeing where he always was confronting powers and principalities of the things that box people in and cause people to not have any kind of quality of life. It all started making sense to me. And given that kind of background, biblically-based background, how do you understand or explain the divergence that exists, in, in my perception, many people's perception, between evangelical Christianity and kind of peace and justice activism? Why aren't they the same? Well, there are places where they are the same. You look at sojourners, you look at... Um, I mean, I don't know. How, how do you answer that? How can churches stand side by side, do the same readings in a church on Sundays, and come out with such different conclusions. It's kind of a mystery as to how that is, and where is the spirit involved in both of those? How do you refrain from being so critical? I mean, sometimes I want to run away from the term Christian, because how many people are killed every second in the name of Christianity? You know, and I look at a very strong nonviolence go beyond love your neighbor, love your enemy in a sacrificial way, when I look at that, I go, how can we all be one body, one faith, one mind? We're not. And yet the scriptures are the same. It's a hard question to grapple with. All I can say is the people that I have met in my life, my mentors, my the people that have gone before me, I see so much truth in their lives, the way they've lived out their lives in a truthful way. I've just tried to absorb some of that truth and replicated in my own life. I don't know. I mean, am I evangelical? On one hand, yes, because I hope that people are inspired by the way I live, by the way we live here at the farm, by the things we do. Evangelical means to bring good news, and I think we have good news here. At our open house this weekend, the first person up the driveway was a pickup with two elderly couples, no idea who they are. And they had read about it in the paper, and they came to see what we were doing. And did they come away filled? I think they did. I think they did. We have such simple ways of using solar and ecologically wise, prudent ways here at the farm that almost anybody can do. The way we live is pretty simple. Is it us here? I don't think so. Some people do. 
there must be something out there because of the 50, 60-plus people that came on Saturday, you maybe only knew 20%. People had heard something good was happening here, came out and saw for themselves, and left with new ideas and inspired. And I think that being evangelical. And it's a wonderful form of evangelism. You mentioned something about the church you now attend there that's Lutheran. How did you get connected with them? A church that I've known about for a long time, West Denmark, Lutheran Church, Danish tradition. could never quite decide that I'd actually join another church. We've attended parishes. We did house church for a year and a half studying the Gospel of Mark. You know, we've done many things, but it's been sort of a whole I happened to be flying home from visiting my sister in Vermont on September 11, 2001, and flew around the Trade Center about 8.40 that morning in a small commuter plane, landed in Newark, and within the hour watched the towers burning from across the bay. Certainly intense experience. I know I came home when I finally was able to get a flight out on Saturday. Came home, of course, disturbed as everyone was. Surprised? No. Shocked? Of course and saddened and all that stuff. It was very intense to be in the area where every single person knew someone that had been in the Trade Center. Within the next week, I had a chance to go to West Denmark, and it was about the same time as the service was, and thought I'd try it out. I knew the pastor because I facilitated a grief group in the area. So I had heard him and liked him as a person and thought, well, let me go check it out. And was surprised to hear him say from the pulpit that the last thing he felt like doing on September 11th was raising an American flag. Also asking questions not how could they do this to us, but saying what hurt is so intense here that a reaction would be so severe. In another period of time on the marquee of the church was deny them their victory practice nonviolent and I thought it was extremely courageous and that cuts across all ties of do I go to the Catholic Church do I go to the Methodist Church do I go to the Baptist Church when I see courage from the pulpit I'm inspired by that and I started going more often and then my my husband started going with me we like the elders the elders are progressive Danes who really look at the world and try to make sense of it and are very clear about speaking out on injustice. We found some kindred spirit. We found a lot of support for our life here. It's just so nice to be in a place where we felt accepted and supported and also challenged. We've been going since then and are pretty involved. in the distance See the flame in the sky See the young ones running for cover The old ones wondering why They tell us that the world is a dangerous place We live in a terrible time But in Hiroshima, New York or in Baghdad It's the innocent to die for the crime Not in my name Not in my not in my name Not in my name Witnesses watch through the window Their hearts locked in horror and pain At the man lying strapped to a gurney As the poison is pumped through his 
face And I'm wondering who are the prisoners Who holds the lock and the key Who has the power over life, over death When will we finally be free Not in my name Not in my name They never see rural America. They're only in big cities. 
we are getting them from the airport and fanning them out, and they're going to spend an afternoon and an evening in Polk County, Wisconsin, have dinner at the church, and I've been talking to kids in uh, the Lux School to come and see if we can do some kind of round table sharing of dances. There's a lot of traditional dancing that goes with being Danish, I guess. I'm not Danish, so I'm new at this and have asked another person that does some international dancing to see if we can make a pretty interesting night. So things like that we bring to the church, and then we come away with being part of a community, and that's a real gift. I think Bonhoeffer says community just is a gift. You can't really demand it. Do you know the date for that? Um, Yeah, they will be here November 1st, and they are performing at Central High School in the Twin Cities on November 2nd. And I think it's 7 or 7.30 in the Twin Cities. Sounds like a wonderful gathering. I think it's going to be amazing. I really have high hopes for it. I think there's 25 in the troupe. I'd like it if you could talk a little bit more, Barb, about the Anathoth community, what your membership is like, what your physical grounds are like, and uh, if you're still willing to grow. Well, as I said before, we have nine adults and one little boy, a couple dogs, a couple cats. Anathoth is 57 acres. It's a really good mix of wood, which include a couple tracks of maple. So we are able to do maple syrup here. I think we put out a little over 200 taps in the spring. Our garden is about an acre. We have, um, oh, I don't know how many acres of tillable, but Mike is able to take pay off the property. Some we sell grass hay for horses. And then we use a lot of hay in our garden for mulch. And then our garden's about an acre. It's got two hoop houses, greenhouses, that are unheated. One is stationary, and the other one is kind of in the mode of Elliot Coleman, the gardener from the Northeast. But it's on rails, and it moves. So currently we have the winter garden planted, and it's outside, and it's uh, greens that will survive freezing and provide us greens all year. We haven't actually been successful at that at this, but we're pretty close. And maybe this will be the year that it really works. What's the religious, spiritual makeup of the nine adults there at Anathoth? Uh, extremely varied. Mike and I are probably the only, are the only ones that belong to a organized church at this point in town. There is some gathering of people at the community for prayer or home church. Maybe it's Murphy's Law. We had really hoped to do that for years, and it didn't have the right mix of people here. After we joined West Denmark, then all of a sudden the right mix became available here. And for whatever reason, you know, Sunday morning is a good time, and and those gatherings happen kind of at the same time. It's a bit of a puzzlement. You long for it for so long to be on your property. It doesn't happen. You find it somewhere else. Then it does happen, and you're sort of torn. There's Quakers here, there's people that do sweat lodges, and the Native American spirituality espouse that in a very deep way. People that have absolutely no connection with any kind of um, Christian faith, that would not hang their hat on any kind of organized religion, but have a spirituality based on um, goodness and truth and spirituality of the land. It's quite a mix. What is the basis that brings you together then? What's the principles or rules that bind you? Nonviolence would be it. Nonviolence, commitment to resist militarism in all forms, sustainability, being in a way that is sustainable. Those are the things that bind us together. Are you willing to grow? Is there room for more people there? 
we discuss that a lot, and I, I don't have an answer to that. Right now our houses are filled up, but there's one structure being almost done. It's always a hard thing of how many is too many, because already with nine of us, we go in a lot of different directions, and we meet every Friday to talk about who's coming, who's going, um, hospitality, what needs to be done in the garden, what's coming up, and all those sorts of things. And sometimes during the week, I don't always see everybody. I don't know what too big is. When people come here to join the community, we ask them to stay a year to see all the seasons of Anathoth. You know, if you come in the summer and you think, oh, this is great, and you hate winter, you certainly don't want to join the community because we have a lot of winter here. Are there rules about a certain amount of involvement you have to have with the community? No, we are pretty respectful, and pretty much everyone here is self-starting enough that, well, we trust that everybody is doing what they need to do. We have a day that we're bringing the potatoes in, and that's the 30th because it's such a big job. Certainly not everybody was here for the open house. There were a couple of people that chose to do something else that day. You know, we brought in somebody else to talk about the solar house that's off the grid. There is a lot of freedom of choice. Sometimes there's resentment with that freedom of choice. You know, am I gone too much because I'm at school three days a week? I care for my dad who has Alzheimer's that fourth day, and then we hit the weekend. So there are days that I just leave early in the morning and get home far after dark, and I don't spend much time in the garden on those days. But I do feel the support of people that I do what I can. As soon as you start counting that I'm doing more than that person is doing, then it breaks down. And I think that's kind of the hard lesson of community is that you don't do your share, you always do more than your share, but unless everybody does more than their share, it doesn't work. Did I hear you to say that you have a weekly house meeting or community meeting? We do. And um, most people, I mean, you try really hard to be there. Now this week, Friday, um, John, LaForge, and Mike will be on the bus already. I think John and Jane are traveling, so I'm not sure who's left. That's always, okay, who's going to be here on Friday? But we do, and we're trying to come up with a schedule that we can do a more in-depth check-in. How are you doing? What's going on in your life? Are you feeling good about things? Where's, where's the struggle? Try to do that. That's kind of an all-day meeting, and those are, those are really good. Sometimes they're hard, but they're always good to do, and we're trying to do that more than twice a year. I mean, it is amazing with nine people. Sometimes it's a real struggle to come up with a whole day that everybody has, and it only happens a couple times a year. What process do you use in your meetings? Sometimes we have a facilitator. Sometimes we even bring people in from the outside if there's things that really need sorting out that we don't think we have the ability to do. We work on consensus, but I can't think of any time anybody has really blocked a decision. There's a lot of respect and a lot of freedom to pursue things. We try to be reasonable and we try to be respectful. And there is quite a lot of autonomy here, which I think is our strength and it also could be our weakness. I heard you say that one of the houses is off the grid. How many houses do you have and are any others off the grid? There are two off the grid. There's one, two, three, four, five, six houses. Of the six houses, two houses have water running into them. Only one of those houses has an actual flush toilet and septic system. Every other house has a composting toilet. Some are manufactured here at the farm, and some are a commercial, and um, 
there's outhouses and nobody has hot water on demand. We have a solar heated shower at our house, or preheat, it's run off a solar panel and it runs water from the hot water heater through a series of tubes and back in to preheat it. It, it brings it up to about 108. But of the two water heaters in the two houses with water, they both have wood fire boxes, so we're able to use scrap wood that's landfilled from Luck Wood Industry to heat our water. Then we also have a solar shower out by the garden, and we're able to use that all summer. In our design of the farm, no house has everything. There's one wash machine on the property. There's one tractor. There's one pickup truck. We have the freezers in our house, and we have a lot of the canned goods on our shelves because our basement doesn't freeze. When you have everything available somewhere on the 57 acres, it gives a lot of license to be able to design the homes in a different way. So you can live without water coming out of your tap if you know you can get a shower at another place. That has worked pretty well. Barb, what are your kids, yours and my kids, attitude towards life in the community? And what are the attitudes of your parents towards your life? Well, we have three kids. Ollie's 24. She probably spent 16 years thinking she would never consider a lifestyle like this, you know, when she graduated and was out of here. And I think she has mellowed quite a bit. I think our kids, especially as they've left, realized how rich their experience was with a lot of different people, a lot of caring adults. It's hard work, and they all know the cost of a lifestyle like this. They have seen their parents in jail. They've seen their adult friends go to jail. They have felt the loneliness of being the only one in their perception opposing the war in 91. You know, yellow ribbons everywhere in the town. Their dad's in jail. They know it's hard for mom, me, at home, trying to keep it all together. They know there's a cost, but they also know that there's been change along the way and a few victories that it's worth it. As they go away and realize what they had here, they're appreciative of it. You also asked about my parents. Luckily, I have the kind of parents that value relationship over agreeing on everything. They were a little taken aback, certainly early on when we moved out to Baltimore to be part of this fairly radical community. Didn't like the jail going and worried, but came out to visit us, have always welcomed us as we came back this way to be closer to them, were financially supportive of the farm, in times when things were really crazy, I could always depend on my mom to come out and help me. I mean, they've been very dependably supportive throughout the whole thing. They probably have changed in their thinking. My mom voted green. You know, <laughs> um, my dad has Alzheimer's, so it's hard to know where he stands anymore. You mentioned the jail time that both you and Mike and I think other community members have spent. What has been their attitude towards your jail time, and what have your kids' attitudes towards it been? You know, they kind of wondered why they thought it was more okay for Mike. That seems unfair. It seems uh, like it's putting people into gender boxes. Was it more okay to, for Dad to be gone than for Mom? I've not done a lot of jail time. I um, certainly was having kids and nursing kids early on, and then after we moved to the farm, I became the primary uh, worker bee. Mike is a better builder. He's a better farmer. And then I got some good jobs. They were good jobs that were flexible and part-time and allowed Mike to do more of the things that he wanted to do and provided me with worthwhile work. 
he thus has been more freed, not punching a clock, to be able to do more jail time. And he has. He's done probably over a year or more cumulatively, but the most he's ever done was, I think, five months. What have you been jailed for? What have I been jailed for? Either one of you. Praying at the White House lawn, praying in the Capitol Rotunda, crossing the line at ALF, crossing in the driveway at Port McCoy after the first Gulf War, serving coffee and cake at Project Gwen. The Gwen Tower system was um, they were expanding it before they had funding, and we went up to Medford and, and said, you know, the funding hasn't been approved. It's probably premature to be putting this new facility up, and Mike did some time for that. But out of that action, a lot of email, a lot of press, it got on ABC World News Tonight on the Your Money, Your Choice segment. The money wasn't approved, and the project went down. <laughs> Do I correctly understand that you and he were put in jail for praying? Oh, yeah. You can't pray where they don't want you to pray. <laughs> on the White House lawn. That was when Ollie was very little, and I think I was just in jail eight hours in lockup. But praying in the Capitol Rotunda as part of the Sojourner's Peace Pentecost. And so the charge was failure to quit praying and singing in the Capitol Rotunda as part of a protest against nuclear weapons. Well, that's what I was doing. So how could you not plead guilty you know, to what you did? Five days. Five days in D.C. detention. Wow. <laughs> One of our friends for, for uh, praying on the White House lawn the same thing I got eight hours time served for, six months. Six months for praying at the White House lawn. He was a vet. The judge asked him his motivation. He said, the last time I listened to what the government told me, I found myself killing women and children in Vietnam, and I don't listen anymore, and it was enough to set the judge off. And he said, maximum six-month sentence. Get out of here. We were shocked. Really? So, Barb, you've obviously come quite a journey religiously. Uh, can you imagine living in community as you do without some kind of a spiritual base? No. I think it's I think it's hand in hand. I think our faith calls us to live in community. I don't know if it's always physically. I mean, I've lived communally probably our whole married life, so that's 27 years. I can't imagine us not in an intentional community. It's a struggle. It's a strain. I mean, you know, it's like being married to nine people sometimes, and for sure it's hard enough to be married to one. I think faith calls us to be accountable to each other, and community puts you right under the microscope. The thing that you think you've nailed down pretty well in your mind, then you're confronted by a community member and have to really sort it out. So it does keep you on your toes, and I think that's good. There's just a lot of good things about being so connected. Spiritually, you know, like I said, we don't share a lot of spirituality on the farm, but on the other hand, there is a spirituality that goes, I think, with community, and there is a strong community spirit. After being part of a church again, you know, I realized I did miss that being part of a, a larger body of people, so I have appreciated that. You've got a whole lot of what I would call ministries, even if people don't generally like that term, that you sponsor out of there. How can people be supportive or get involved with what you're doing? I'm very heartened when I read what other people are doing other places. And I think each of us create our work, our ministry, in our backyard. 
which was one of the things as we moved from Baltimore to the unknown abyss <laughs> of Wisconsin Midwest. What struck us was that the Pentagon's in everybody's backyard because it's everywhere, and that work would be here for us. Far be it from us to realize how much work there would be. The Northwoods Peace Initiative certainly has connected a loose band of people with lots of um, good hopes and energy to make change. It's kind of connected us up in a, in a good way. Before the current war, I think people got a lot of energy from connecting and out of going out to Washington with those 11 buses. In 2003, people came home and started vigiling in all the small towns all over the place. That's what I think we each need to do, is try to find our work in our, our own community, get together occasionally to celebrate what we're doing right and just to be together, but to realize that change is going to take all of us where we are. We certainly welcome people to come visit and chat with us here at Anathoth and encourage us with their stories, and hopefully we can encourage others with our story that we can go down the same path together knowing that, you know, it's a lot bigger than any one of us, and yet it's attainable with all of us. And if people want to contact you, how can they do that? Our email is Anathoth, which is A-N-A-T-H-O-T-H, at Lakeland, L-A-K-E-L-A-N-D, dot W-S, which I always thought meant website, but it actually stands for Western Samoa, and I have no idea why. <laughs> or our phone number is uh, 715-472-8721. And I know this is going to air after the buses go to D.C., so you might even have a chance of reaching us. Because <laughs> our phone is pretty busy these last few days. If I have any idea what your life is like there, you probably have more visitors than you can possibly assimilate uh, into your hearts and your lives and your minds. Are people allowed to come visit periodically? Absolutely. We have visitors almost every week. It's not always in one swoop, and we have plenty of spare rooms and camping areas if people want to stay overnight. We always joke, so are these Catholic workers emphasis on worker? <laughs> so our, our Catholic worker friends the other day that came bagged up the onions. If people come and they visit and then they want to share an hour of work, there's always a project. If you don't want to share an hour of work, we're fine with that because actually we need to be encouraged to play a little more, you know, have a cup of tea and, and, and talk about things. Please don't feel like we are so inundated with visitors that people shouldn't call because we really enjoy having people here and seeing the farm and ensuring what we have. Barb, it's wonderful having the time with you. I'm heartened by so many of the good programs that come out of Anathoth and that you support and also that you have such a very clear spiritual religious basis to what you do. The story of your small Lutheran church there is amazing to me and a bright spot on the horizon. It is a bright spot on the horizon, and we're just real um, grateful to have it in our community. Thank you so much for asking me to be part of this. I've, I've enjoyed the talk. I'll look forward to meeting you soon in person. I know a woman who's in motion from the rising of the morning sun. Walls that stand between her and the place she needs to be in 
know they keep on toppling one by one. She keeps moving till the rainbows end is fire. She's getting off on getting in. She keeps making progress and breaking ground. She says you got to keep on moving, even when you cannot feel the beat. You got to keep on moving. It's energizing to be rising when you're bringing up and holding you back. And when you're rolling, you'll bet you find you're picking up momentum. You just pray your wheels stay on the track. You can't stop. Listening to an interview with Barb Cass of the Anathoth Community Farm in Luck, Wisconsin. You can listen to this and other interviews via the web at northernspiritradio.org. Music on this program has included two songs by Charlie King, The Hammer Has to Fall, and A Woman of Great Energy, and a song by John McCutcheon, Not in My Name. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. I have no heart for you than me. Love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness. Love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness.